Thought Leadership from PwC. Today, we're bringing you a special workforce and ESG-focused episode. The one thing we have a talent strategy is to say, you come here, you will build skills that will make you better and more employable in the future. Those skills could be about finance, but it could be about applying your finance acumen to how you lead teams, how your company makes decisions about um, ESG, how it how it thinks about the externalities when it makes decisions around kind of what investments to make. So it's about being an attractive place to build skills that improve your future employability. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. In today's episode, we're not just talking about reporting on ESG, we're talking about actually doing ESG and the topic workforce. We're joined by an insightful guest and the joint global leader of PwC's people and organizational practice, Bushan Seti. Now more than ever, organizations and institutions are being held accountable for their impacts on their people, society, and the environment, with purpose being more than just lip service. PwC's Hopes and Fears 2022 survey found employees are demanding that companies look beyond financial performance to broader ESG considerations, particularly regarding transparency. Bouchon makes the case that measuring, reporting, and achieving ESG goals is no easy task, but the risk is that businesses are paralyzed by the complexity. In a world of scarce skills where talent has a choice, Companies who focus solely on generating financial value at the expense of caring for their employees or exhibiting a societal purpose will soon see their best people go elsewhere. Bouchon, as always, has some great insights to share. So let's get started. So Bouchon, welcome back to the podcast. It's actually been some time since we've had you on. So looking forward to our conversation. And it's an interesting topic, one we've been spending a lot of time um, talking about this year, ESG more broadly, but specifically what we wanted to hone in on today was ESG and how that, I'll call it concept, interacts with workforce and everything going on from a workforce perspective. So maybe just to kick things off, where are we more broadly from a workforce perspective and, and where does ESG fit in as companies are thinking about engaging with their workforce? Thanks, Heather. It's great to be back with you and your listeners. Um, in terms of where workforce fits in right now in the business landscape, um, our recent Pulse survey of 800 execs that we polled in early August this year basically told us that they are leaning into growth. As part of that growth, they see a couple of big risks, one about cyber and the second one about accessing and retaining their specialized talent. They also interestingly told us that they're doubling down on their investments in digital, in customer experience and ESG. And so to do, to, if you put all those things together, they also told us that they're looking to manage their costs in a responsible way. 50% are looking to reduce headcount. So if you think about those, those vectors of I'm driving growth, I'm investing in um, technology and ESG, and I need to attract and retain talent, but also manage the the bottom line. ESG is squarely part of this, but we've got to acknowledge that different businesses based on their balance sheet, based on economic um, impacts, based on inflation, are going to either double down and prioritize this now, or maybe kind of push this out in the context of some of their more shorter term priorities. And I think that 
we as a business community and as as employees need to acknowledge some of that, that some of this will be near term and some of this will be more medium term. But as we all know, in any in any business initiative, if we're not planning for the medium term, we'll never we'll never get there. So I look forward to digging into all of these concepts with you. So then, Vishon, if we think I'm just going to start from a workforce perspective and, you know, the, the tight workforce and you kind of gave two contrary things that companies want to grow, but they want to cut their their workers. And so how does ESG fit in then? Are you are we seeing that people are saying, oh, I don't want to work for that company because their values don't align with my values? That's what we hear. But is that more? a perception than a reality? Like, what do you think of how that fits into the conversation? Yeah, so ESG is definitely showing up in the, I want purpose and I want meaning in my work. And the S in ESG is very squarely something that employees want. In one of our global surveys, Heather, of 52,000 people that we did earlier this year, people actually said the reason why they would leave a company is if they're not fulfilled in their work, if they're meaning if they're not kind of given meaning in their work and if 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 they're not enjoying it, it doesn't and it's not important to them. They also said if they can't be their authentic self, which actually plays into the inclusion part of diversity, equity and inclusion. And then they said it was about fair pay. So purpose and meaning is definitely a reason why um, people would not kind of give of their 100 percent if you think about quiet quitting, but mm-hmm. also why they would leave a company. But the E is so important right now. And unfortunately, this has been highly politicized. Um, the, the terrible war in Ukraine has impacted the ability, you know, this topic to be discussed for certain businesses. But certain business models are having to accelerate into this. Um, certain other business models um, are going to having to think about decarbonization and what does that mean? Or what does a, cli- a climate strategy mean for my business model? And so we 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 talked about the need to raise climate and environmental acumen in the same way that we raise digital acumen for lots of workers around the US um for some companies that's going to be slower um than others given some of the near term immediate factors around kind of their business and also you know if you think about the energy industries if we we are going to get more into production and less into alternative fuels maybe some of that gets pushed but the S is definitely alive and well. So one thing you've said, well, many things you said, I have follow-up questions, but one, I actually recently read, a, I'll call it contrarian view, which you mentioned people want to bring their authentic self to work. And I do think there's a contrarian view of please don't bring your authentic self to work. Let's just work. And are you seeing from a cultural perspective that some of these issues that maybe the workforce, you know, is focused on and caring about where there's senior management saying, this is not a priority for our company. Like we get that you care about this, but from a strategic perspective, we need to focus elsewhere. Like how do you reconcile those two points of view? Yeah. So, so many people privately say to me things like, do we have to discuss all of these social issues in the workplace, whether that's you know, over a virtual coffee, whether it's in the physical workplace, whether it's on the factory floor. Um, the challenge is that employees are already talking about this. In that same global survey, two thirds of people are saying that they're discussing the social issues that are important to them. It could be about abortion, it could be about guns, it could be about LGBT. And by and large, they're having a positive experience. Younger people and ethnic minorities are having a more positive experience. But the positive outweigh the negative. And so what firms have to realize is 
They have to potentially understand that people are having these discussions. And then the choice is, do they want to put guardrails in place? Do they want to say to their employees, it's okay. It's, it's okay to have a safe space at work to talk about these things because they're personal to you, because the research tells us that that does impact your ability to perform and be engaged and, and your productivity. But yes, these are not without contentious views. And it's not about changing people's opinions. And it's not about getting into debate and divisiveness. It's about saying workplaces can be a safe space where people can share how they're feeling because it does impact their ability to perform. But again, some organizations, like you said, have actually said, we don't want to discuss these social issues in the workplace. We positively positively discourage it. Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge that these conversations happening are independent of the positions that firms are publicly taking because firms have the right to take public positions on many social issues that are important to them and their stakeholders. This question that we asked was independent and two thirds of people are discussing these social issues that are relevant to them. So I think it's an interesting point because there definitely are different views. And how, as a leader, how do you reconcile the fact that you may have some group of employees that this is what's going to make them feel like they belong, that this is the place that they want to work, and other employees that are saying this is just another initiative, this is not something that belongs at work, and you know, both probably equally important in terms of retention and engagement and everything else. So if I'm a leader, how do I think about that? It's going to be different for different companies and different industries. But, you know, it, it does come back to like, what is the firm's purpose and core values? So many firms have have taken on purpose and, you know, some of the PwC and, you know, how we have values of compassion and belonging and kind of everyone counts in the organization. So firms that that have a purpose and values, it's much more safer to actually say, I do want to share how I'm feeling. I, as a leader, want to engage you, whether it's an issue of mental health, whether it's an issue of of something that is very personal to you that's happening in the in the world, kind of, you know, if, if it's if it's if, whether it's war, whether it's something that impacts human rights, people people are um, take this stuff kind of incredibly personally. And we spend so much of our time in either the physical or the virtual workplace these days. It is unrealistic for any employer or any leader to think that people aren't affected. The challenge is, and it comes back to values and people's comfort and leaders' own personal style to say, do you want to give people safe space to kind of share how they're feeling? Or do you at least want to just acknowledge that topics are happening and that you care about it, um, which is kind of how some firms have done and managed things where there is no right or there's no right or wrong answer. It's deeply personal, but acknowledging the issue is sometimes incredibly important as well. That would be my advice. But again, these are very individual decisions. So I want to go back to what you said about uh, purpose. And we've talked about purpose before. Obviously, it's been a big topic, but there are clearly still some firms who haven't or companies that haven't determined their true purpose other than perhaps to make a profit. And so, you know, as you're dealing with leaders that are still thinking through where they are going directionally, whether it is on some of these social issues, on climate issues or otherwise, how are companies thinking that through if, if they haven't already taken a stand? 
Well, this is where we get into the kind of the short term and where we are with kind of economic um, headwinds and rising inflation and costs and, and, you know, who knows what we might see in, in the next kind of round of earnings. But, you know, GDP has gone down around the world and in the US. But even if you look at that and even if you say that we're going to move back to more shareholder capitalism and, and stakeholder ca- and not stakeholder capitalism, I think firms are firms are looking at this in a bit of a longer term. Firms understand that we do need to think about the stakeholders. We do need to think about the community. We need to think about externalities from our products. We need to think about our role in society, whether it's wages, taxes, environmental impacts. And so even though there might be so many immediate focuses on shoring up balance sheets, managing cash flow, um, you know, protecting kind of shareholders and kind of thinking about if we need to take out costs, how do we do that in a responsible way? Businesses have realized that you've got to think about the other stakeholders, the consumers, the regulators, the um, the, the broader analysts, the investors, the suppliers for, for this to be sustainable. And just one point on that, we asked in our global workforce survey of 52,000 workers about transparency. Over 50% of the workforce want more transparency from their company on diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of representation, their role in society in terms of paying fair wages and paying um, uh, their share, share of taxes, so, so the S. And they also want more disclosures on what they're doing around the environmental impact. So obviously 50% did and 50% didn't. But that's a significant number in any workforce. If half your workforce are clamoring for more transparency, firms have to respond on some of these topics too. So how are you seeing companies address that in terms of sharing their initiatives or sharing their values with their employees? Well, we've seen in the last few years that some firms are more comfortable with transparency. We've seen in the diversity, equity, inclusion space that firms have been public around publishing some of their gender representation data. I've seen that a lot in financial services where the banks have issued transparency reports on on gender representation, but also what they're doing around their role in the community. Um, people are disclosing what they're comfortable with. So some firms are not disclosing um, aspects around, around race or um, some firms are disclosing around social mobility in places like the UK where that's a big initiative to say how do people whose parents didn't go to university, um, how are they kind of rising in, in terms of social mobility? So it's disclosures, it's conversations, it's embedding this in their hiring strategies, it's communicating to their employees. But I think it's also important that um, in for certain areas, firms are not being as transparent, probably because they haven't got kind of a good story there. And you and you can't optimize all variables. So firms are being deliberate in saying which of the areas we can control, where do we start, whether it's around gender or whether it's around, um, you know, other kind of unrepresented minorities or, or people from different social classes. So how are you seeing companies deal with it then if they decide, let's say, to look at some of these numbers and it's not a good story? I'll use the word story, but the facts are not good or would not be viewed positively by their workforce. What does the company do? Well, this is where I think we have to give credit for the companies that are publishing data, even though it's not a good story, because it's a starting point. It's a baseline. I've seen companies be very humble with their story to say the data is not there. Even in our own PwC partnership stats, Heather, like the, the, the data is out there. We want my, more diversity in every kind of flavor 
around our own partner stats. We're publishing our, our information and it gives us, it gives everyone the momentum to say, how do we improve that? It, it, it creates what we talked about earlier, a better sense of belonging. It gets us to look at are there systemic barriers from how we hire and how do we develop and how we give feedback. Um, what is the role of more senior leaders? What is the role of of diverse cohorts to actually speak up if they're not getting the development opportunity or if they think that there's bias within organizations. So even though the data is not great, I think it's it's a good starting point because we're now having the discussion to say, how do we get from A to B? Well, and I guess even without the data, there's definitely perceptions that are out there. So in some cases, perhaps it's better to be dealing with the real data and say, yes, the perception's right. This is what we're going to do. Or hey, there is this perception, but it's not backed up by the data. I mean, you could kind of wind up in both places in that case. Absolutely. Maybe shifting a little bit, we've touched briefly on climate and the importance of climate. And obviously, we've seen so many companies that have publicly proclaimed that they're net zero goals, or they've said they're going to take these actions for climate. I think we've seen other companies in industries maybe that are more emissions intensive, talking about how they're going to transition to, you know, a, I'll call it cleaner future. But this is a topic that there's so much interest in, and yet the level of knowledge is highly varied. So if I'm, again, an employer, this is important to me, and I want to upskill my employees, how do I start thinking about upskilling and, and creating a level of knowledge and awareness? One of the first things organizations have got to acknowledge is this is such a polarizing discussion. There are some people that want to just switch off when they hear the term, especially the E in environment, or they hear the term climate, because either either it's been highly politicized and they just don't believe in it, or it feels a nebulous long-term thing that I don't have to consider when I'm either you know, having anxiety in my work and my workplace, I'm worried about my job security. And for those who are kind of lower in the pyramid, like an entry-level workers and essential workers, they're living paycheck to paycheck in a high inflation world. So so I can totally kind of empathize with, with people who are thinking, I get it, but it's not my immediate, my immediate term. And so firms, as part of creating awareness with all of their constituents, including their employees, need to at least acknowledge that um, it isn't about a debate on this topic. It's about saying, how are we going to respond to this as a business? If we're a tech firm, how are we going to look at things like data centers? And we, and you know, how are we going to look at kind of the emissions that we create? Um, you know, and then you got to get into the, you know, how does it impact our business model? How are we going to make decisions about whether it's our supply chain or whether we're going to kind of seek to use alternative energy sources? Or as you mentioned, if we are in the energy space, how do we start shifting production into kind of those alternative energy sources? But every business is impacted from the suppliers it uses, from how it consumes energy, its carbon footprint. Um, we don't have to make everybody expert technical resources about what's the difference between scope one and scope two emissions and what's the how do I start programming and learning about climate technology? And, you know, when I'm thinking about alternative currencies like crypto, which one emits more energy like that might be more advanced knowledge for certain people to know. Absolutely. But we need everybody to have the basics of environmental and climate acumen 
so that they can understand how it impacts the business model and the products and services and the emissions of their own company because firms firms will be investing and as you said they've made bold commitments maybe those those the schedules around when they deliver those might change because we're prioritizing the natural short term and kind of the financial focus today but we need to raise the awareness we need to understand it's politicized we need to do it in a safe environment it needs to come back to business to say how does it impact our business model our supply chain and for every function including finance it needs to be very relevant to what does that mean in terms of the data we produce what does it mean in terms of the investments that we make what does it mean in terms of what our customers want so we've got to somehow depoliticize this and more make it relevant to the business and the functions that people work in. So I want to come specifically back to climate, but I want to touch on your last point, because I do think a theme I'm hearing from you was probably balance. Like you don't need to go too far one way or another, but I do think there's a few places where balance can get difficult. And one is the needs of different stakeholders, including specifically employees and potentially customers, particularly if perhaps your employees are being drawn from, I'll call it one part of the population, and your customers are, you know, in a different part of the population. So how do you see companies kind of reconciling that maybe what their customers want is not the same thing that their employees want? understanding kind of voice of customer surveys um, and also kind of the voice employee surveys to really understand this. So, I mean, the two things that connect this is the trust agenda. So do my customers trust, do do, do customers trust that the firm is actually going to do the right thing, do the right thing by the environment, do the right thing by its employees, do the right thing from a product quality and safety perspective. So we know that businesses have a huge responsibility um, in terms of customer trust and employee trust. And so, it, again, it comes back to messaging and it comes back to understanding kind of what it is that your your customers want. Um, in the same way as, you know, firms have to be super transparent with their customers in terms of um, products, sourcing strategy, um, you know, how, how it was produced, emissions, emissions data. And then customers can make decisions to say, do they want to, they want to take their trade elsewhere or do they want to kind of work with companies where they're unclear of you know the supply chain and where where the sourcing decisions were made well sounds like and i mean you've touched on this communication whether with your own workforce with your customers with your board your other stakeholders and we've talked about this on past podcasts too that communication is crucial here to make sure that people understand maybe why you're making some of the decisions that you're making yeah, and whether it's and and this is not necessarily even an ESG topic, but even if you think about reshoring at the start of the pandemic, we talked about um, having more adaptive supply chain, so we're not overly reliant on one company that sorry one country that's that's producing all the goods. It as part of having agile supply chains or having nearshore um, production can increase costs, and you can pass those costs on to the customer if you are being really clear around kind of why you're making those decisions. And so you're absolutely right that communications of all sorts are going to be incredibly important. The prices of so many things that we consume, whether they be services like transportation and restaurants and hotels, as well as products, have risen significantly. So, um, you know, And for some consumers, they're really strong in terms of balance sheets and the ability to spend. And consumer confidence, paradoxically, is high in the U.S., 
um, from the data that we see. So I do think that that communications and a big role the CFO plays with data um, is, is critical right now for organizations. So Vishan, we've bounced around to a few different parts of the ESG topic, and I do want to come back to talent and thinking about attracting talent. But what else, when you're talking to um, you know your clients, what else is sort of top of mind as they're thinking about these sort of various aspects of the ESG discussion? Yeah. So we talk about um, the transition um, and you know how to be net zero. There's a massive transition for employees. If I am decarbonizing my supply chain, if I am sourcing alternative products, even if I'm changing the daily behaviors of a sales force that is used to travel to, to then going into more virtual sales and only traveling kind of, you know, you know, 80% less so signature events or client conferences, that's a huge behavioral change and it's scary for people. And so doubling down on the investments around upskilling and communications are so significant right now. Um, people coming in newer to the workforce or people transitioning um, from roles that were more carbon intensive to, to less, they need, a, they need an on-ramp and they need an upskilling plan. And so in the same way that, that people got schooled on business process reengineering in the 90s, um, the use of enterprise resource planning systems in things like supply chains at the turn of the century, we all got much more savvy around digital technologies of various forms over the last 10 years. The next wave, even though it's politicized and even though for some it's more of a medium term topic, everybody needs to raise their environmental and climate acumen to the extent that it impacts your business and your financials. And so the investments firms can make now is bringing people along and again, not from a position of your job's going to be eliminated, but from a position of this is so important to your business. And whether you work for us now for another year or another 10 years, we think it's a reusable skill and set of knowledge that you can apply elsewhere. Um, I see that that's, that's where companies um, that are going to be magnets for talent and also companies that are going to pivot and kind of re redesign their business model and think about ESG are going to be well positioned for the future. But I still think that we're in the first innings of that because of all the near-term topics and the war in Ukraine and coming out of the pandemic. And the only firms that are really digging into this are the firms that are doing this out of necessity because of their business model, because they're so carbon intensive right now. Well, and I think, Vishan, I'm glad you brought up transition. And we've talked before on the podcast about just transition and you know this idea that maybe you have a factory that's polluting, but then if you shut that factory down, you just killed an entire town. So how, you know, balancing those different needs of the different stakeholders is definitely something I think if we go back to the discussion, the CFO and balance, trying to think through those things, are you seeing business decisions being made with more of this, I'll call it a ESG type of lens? Yeah. So I think what we're talking about is kind of the role of business in a community and the ability to to create good jobs. So absolutely, you've, you've got to create employment that's sustainable for pe people in those communities. And that's where businesses have to work with policymakers and it, it, to, to say, how, how do we make this just transition? Can we pivot people into other jobs that are in demand, um, that have engineering skills? If, if, 
if that state or country is looking at um, redesigning its infrastructure. Um, so, so I think that's where it's, it's the public-private partnerships that would need to work together. Um, and so I think, I mean, that that's going to be a critical part of the community thing. And also this um, this notion of good jobs that we started talking about probably five years ago at places like the World Economic Forum and the G20. I see that now getting a renaissance. I see we actually published a paper on what does it mean to have good work and good jobs. But people want the dignity of work. People want a good work environment. They want an environment that's safe and that they can actually learn and have skills that make them more employable in the future, where their climate skills, data skills, you know, business skills, leadership skills. And it comes back to organizations saying, am I actually creating good jobs? Or are these jobs just um, taking away people's dignity? And we're, we're, we're not treating people in a humane way, and we're not building them skills for the future. So I think it comes back to communities, the, 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 the relationships with policymakers, but also firms now starting to say the jobs that we're designing are they actually good jobs that that actually allow people to thrive and and build skills so vishan listening to you it's almost like there's these work these workplaces that are like a utopia where you can talk about anything you want where the the company is making all the right decisions in terms of balancing esg they're still profitable they still have lots of customers like realistically if i'm a cfo it's hard. It may be hard to get from where I am to this. I'm going to call it utopia you're describing. So what are a couple steps you would recommend that someone, again, if they have a ways to go, where do you see companies starting? Yes. Um, so firstly, utopian companies don't exist, nor do workplaces in the same way utopian families don't exist, because any family that looks perfect on the inside, on the outside, isn't necessarily on the inside. Um, the reason why... I think the business community are talking about these things that that feel aspirational, like inclusive leadership, like fair working environments, like a place where we can talk about mental health and bring our whole self to work, a place where people thrive and can build skills that that build better skills for them and society in the future is because if we don't talk about these things and if we don't aspire, we'll never make progress. And so we know that there's huge um, disparities that we have around racial inequity. We know that there's um, social injustice. We know just by looking at kind of refugees displaced around the world that not everyone has equal opportunities, even if you just take it out of the US for a moment. So that's why businesses have to kind of pick the things that they want to focus on and demonstrate progress. So it could be we just want to create awareness of what our stance is around ESG and what we want to change in our supply chain or the way that our people interact or thinking about the externalities of the products that we produce and managing any stakeholder harm. And it could be as simple as that to say, this is what we've got to embed in the mindset of people that are building our products, selling our products, financing our products or financing customers' products. It can then move forward to say, what do we want to do on moving the needle on and educating our workforce so that they can be prepared for this transition? And especially looking at, at parts of your business that are going to be more impacted. Um, they could also say, as we start making strategic investment decisions, and obviously finance plays a massive role here, Heather, um, how do we bring the right data to think about all of the risks, to think about the adoption, to think about kind of the communications, the safety, et cetera. So I think it's it's 
declaring it's picking your spots it's being super transparent around what it is you're going to do and then just tracking progress against a couple of areas it's you cannot do everything and you've also got to acknowledge that you're going to have to have consequences so your point around what if we do have suppliers that don't comply with our fair fair wages and safety rules um what if parts of our organization that are making investments or investing in businesses that are polluting? So we've got to have some consequences because reputational damages will be will be kind of dam reputations will be made and lost in these areas. And it might be that, you know, 85 percent of your organization and your ecosystem is comfortable. But if you have um, some non non-compliance, how are you actually going to deal with that? All right. So definitely a lot to think about there. And I think a lot of good advice for companies. Maybe final question. I'm going to go very, very tactical. So we've talked about the sort of war for talent and the fact that there's still, at least in some areas, shortage of workers. So if I'm, again, the, my CFO, and I'm thinking about the attracting talent to my company, out of all of the things we've talked about today, sort of what's the one piece of advice you would give them and thinking about their talent strategy? The one thing we have a talent strategy is to say, you come here, you will build skills that will make you better and more employable in the future. Those skills could be about finance, but it could be about applying your finance acumen to how you lead teams, how your company makes decisions about um, ESG, how it how it thinks about the externalities when it makes decisions around kind of what investments to make. So it's about being an attractive place to build skills that improve your future employability. All right. Another great piece of advice. So Bouchon, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes. We're taking a break from our accounting toolkit and bringing you two episodes focusing in on current events, providing you with insight as you think about your quarterly close, but as well as you look ahead to your end. There's something in here for everyone, whether you're a private company, a public company, domestic, multinational, or otherwise, so you won't want to miss it. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for a newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.